raise the dead? Simple answer, because not everyone dies in God's perfect timing. Why did Jesus command us to raise the dead? Because not everybody dies in God's perfect timing. Like Bill Johnson said, Jesus ruined every funeral he ever went to, including his own. But Jim, it just seems so out of norm to see a miracle of raising the dead, right? And so that's what a miracle is. It's outside of nature. It's outside of the natural possibility. It's outside of our power. Here's the deal, guys. When you're a friend of God and you know that he's your heavenly father, you're going to trust him in the words that he says to you. Guys, as a pastor, I've done funerals for people who uh, died before God's perfect timing. Listen, God, Jesus raised children from the dead. He raised adults from the dead. So guess what we're going to be doing? We're going to be doing that also. Some of you are like, hold on, this is a little, this is a little strange. Just stick with me here, all right? Jesus raised people from the dead, but you know what? He also commanded us to. I'm talking imperatives. I'm talking, like, no doubt about it, he said do it. Matthew 10, 8, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles, and he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you've received, freely give. Now, some people are like, hold on, Jim, that's, that's beautiful and everything, but Jesus gave that command to the original 12 disciples, and so a lot of people just try to write it off. Here's the deal. Let's look at uh, 18 chapters later in Matthew. We just read Matthew 10. Here's Matthew 28. Some people refer to this as the Great Commission. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Immerse them in the reality of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm ready for this. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Hold on. What what did he just command them? Heal the sick. Raise it. So the same commission to the disciples is now the commission to all believers. Some of you, that should excite you. Some of you, maybe it scares you. I don't know. But uh, Jesus says, those are the same thing I've just been teaching all these disciples. I want you guys to go and teach it to every single person. Guys, listen, Christianity is so supernatural, you can't even be a believer unless you believe in dead raising. Literally, the entrance requirement into Christianity is you have to believe that God, Jesus was raised from the dead. Unless you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's, I mean, that's Romans 10, 9. That's, that's entrance into there. So here we are in a series. Uh, we're looking at the 26 healing miracles of Jesus. And we're not doing it to, to um, pique our intellectual curiosity or maybe equip us to debate our friends here or, 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 God forbid, argue on Facebook. My goodness, people don't need any more equipping on that, do we? But um, we, we're learning to do healing ministry just like the disciples did. How did they do it? They learned it looking over the shoulder of Jesus. They saw how he did it. And, now, and then uh, once Jesus um, died and rose from the dead and sent the Holy Spirit, they now had the same power that Jesus had to raise the dead to heal the sick. They now had it, and they were going to do it just like he did. And so um, we're doing these series, uh, you know, looking at these one story at a time. Of course, Jesus healed more than 26 people, but we've got 26 individual stories. And so we're looking at these one at a time so that we can get them in our minds. We can get them in our imagination. We can see Jesus doing them. But then eventually we want to see it so we're seeing ourselves doing it because we have the same relationship to the Father. We've been adopted as sons and daughters. We have the same power of the Holy Spirit. So, all right, so let's turn with Mark chapter 5. It's our first dead-raising story. You know what's pretty cool is our church has seen over a dozen people raised from the dead, and we've never actually taught on raising the dead. I don't know of any other churches that have a dozen. Like, I'm not trying to compare. I'm not trying to be competitive. <clears throat> really, I'm not. I, just, I mean, yay God, I mean, we, we, there's, we don't do a whole lot of things right around here, but one thing we do is we keep our eyes on Jesus, and, um, and it's equipping people to do things. There's not, there's not a manual for how to raise the dead. 
There's nowhere Jesus is like, all right, here's the secret. So what we have is we have his commands and we have his lifestyle. So that's what we're getting into today. So Mark chapter 5, verse 21, it's the story of Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Uh, so remember, we're gonna, actually, I'll set it up later. Verse 22, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands in her, so that she may be well and live. And he went with them. Now, um, I'm just going to keep going here. So, he, uh, so uh, right in the middle of this, we got the lady who come and touches the edge of his garment. Remember this story? This is like she, we looked at it last week. She actually interrupts this process. So here, this guy, Jesus, gets this news. They're in a hurry to go and uh, and heal this person's daughter. Uh, when a woman touches the edge of his garment, Jesus has the conversation with her. We talked about this last week. And while he's still speaking, verse 35, Mark 5, 35, while he's still speaking, to who? To the woman with the issue of blood. Remember, he's telling her, go into peace. He's telling her these things. While he's still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone, some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Well, this is good. Verse 37, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside. Don't you just love Jesus just taking charge of this whole situation? <laughs> he put them outside. It's actually, the, the word is strong there. It's the same word that he used to cast out demons. Whoosh. Sometimes demons look like humans, right? Anyway, so... <laughs> The most deacon-possessed churches, anyway, so. <laughs> and they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, meaning Peter, James, and John, and they went in to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately a girl got, the girl got up and began, to, and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Well, there's a lot in here. This is, there's a lot in here. Let's just backtrack and get this in perspective. This has been quite a 24-hour period for Jesus. Like, Jack Bauer could not compare to this 24-hour period. <laughs> Guy from 24, okay? And so, um, so remember, uh, backing up Jesus, he'd crossed the uh, Galilean Sea, uh, um, and then they hit, this, they hit this demonically inspired storm that's got like tornado-like winds. Jesus is sleeping on the boat. The fishermen, I mean, these guys, are, I mean, some of the disciples are fishermen. They were used to the sea, and they're freaking out. They think that they're about to die. They wake up Jesus. He stands up on the stern of the ship, rebukes the wind and the waves, talks to the wind and the waves. They instantly settle down. They cross over to the other side. I mean, that's, that's pretty traumatic. I mean, this is the disciples are in awe. They're fearing this Jesus. Like, he's Lord over, the, Lord over nature. He gets to the other side. Now this demoniac who has a legion of demons comes running at them, chains for that he's been broken. He's naked, cutting himself, all these type of things. Jesus casts the demon out, uh, lets the demons go into the pigs. The pigs, 2,000 pigs run down. They drown. And then the town begs Jesus to leave. The the, so the disciples are afraid of Jesus. The town's afraid of Jesus. But it was, uh, it was two different kinds of fear. The one fear drew them in. The other fear wanted Jesus to leave. So, so, I mean, so Jesus still, I mean, uh, you know, up all night, gets, catches a little cat nap in the boat, ministers all night. In the morning, he goes back to, uh, across the boat, and um, so the, the Decapolis people, the city of the ten cities, the people of the ten cities, 
they're begging Jesus to leave, and as he's coming across the boat, these people couldn't wait for Jesus to come. They must have saw, hold on, that looks like Jesus' boat. They begin to call, and then a crowd gathers around. And so you can just see how, I mean, Jesus has just showed that he's Lord over creation. He's shown that he's Lord over the demonic. Now he's about to show that he's Lord over death. How are we doing? And so um, it says that uh, while he's on the seashore teaching, uh, the crowd, you can imagine them kind of milling about. They're listening to Jesus teaching, and all of a sudden, the synagogue ruler, the big dog of the area, comes, in a, uh, comes to Jesus. He was probably the most important person in the, in the area because the Jewish synagogue was the hub of the city life. The whole town would have known who this guy was. Um, and so, I mean, when, when he's coming in, the eyes of the people would have known him coming from miles around. And if you remember the Roman centurion, remember one of the first miracles we looked at? He's actually the one who built this synagogue. And so uh, they said there was a group of people that came with the Roman centurion to beg Jesus. Perhaps Jairus was one of these people. We don't know, but he's the ruler of that synagogue that the Roman centurion built. And so here's the kind of the, the context of the day. There's this rising antagonism from the religious people against Jesus. Okay, so here in Capernaum, all sorts of miracles are happening. You think everybody's loving it. They'll be like, this is great. I mean, we've got Jesus right here. Miracles, teaching, this is, this is the Messiah. This is No, no, that's not what they're thinking. Um, not only do the, ho- the, the holiness sect, the Pharisees, hate him, but the whole synagogue network is beginning to get nervous. In John chapter 12, we find out there's some rulers that actually believed in Jesus, but they didn't dare let anybody know because they were afraid of losing their positions. Okay, so that's what's going on. You got people hating him. You got some believing him, but they're afraid because the whole synagogue network, they're kind of against Jesus. So here in the middle of this political turmoil, it is not cool to, uh, to speak about Jesus in this thing. I mean, you, you can just imagine today. I mean, it's like someone standing up today and saying something bold about uh, family values or marriage, right? It's like you, you do not want to say that in this kind of context. So in the midst of this political turmoil, Jairus somehow has faith born in his heart. He's heard some things about Jesus. He may not know completely what he believes about Jesus, but he knows if he can get Jesus to his daughter, something good's going to happen. And so for the sake of his little girl, he shuns the religious establishment. It doesn't even look like his family believes. We're going to see that in just a second. And he leaves the death chamber of his little girl. Can you just imagine this? I mean, he knows she's got hours left to live, maybe the last hour. And instead of spending it with her, he makes this desperate journey to go and find Jesus. And it's not like he knew exactly where he was. I mean, he's been at the house. You know, and somehow maybe word gets back, Jesus is around, so now he's running, he's trying to, he's trying to find the crowd. Imagine the desperation on this father, knowing his, his, his daughter's last little bit. And as soon as he left, what happened? The family starts preparing the funeral. They're not standing in faith with this thing. How do we know this? Because when they came and told them, your daughter's dead, it was a few minutes, I mean, I've been to Capernaum, because I was just in Israel. It's not that big of an area. And so it was just a few-minute walk, wherever you are, to get there. And they already had the professional mourners in place there. They'd been planning the funeral. They were not, they were not standing in faith. So Jairus' family is not expecting a miracle. You've got the whole synagogue movement. They're kind of against this whole Jesus thing. And here, somehow, he's going, uh, going against all this grain. And in Mark 5, 22, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. And implored him earnestly. He's begging Jesus, saying, my little girl. Such a term, a term of endearment. And so um, we find out that she's 12 years old. Actually, um, the girls were of marrying age at 12 years old. They were considered adults. They would have had a, um, boys have a bar mitzvah, meaning son of the commandment. Girls had a bat mitzvah, daughter of the commandment. And so she was, he would have been of age. But he still sees her as his little girl. And so you can just see this is daddy's little girl. This is my dear daughter. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she, may be, she, that she may be made well and live. 
and he went with them. You can see here that Jesus moves according to your faith because other people had faith that Jesus could just say the word. But here's Jesus. He's responding to them according to his faith. His faith was that if Jesus could come and lay hands on them, that would happen. So Jesus moves according to our faith. We've looked at that before. Have you ever, and, um, here's, here's the VP of the town. He's taking a position of worship and begging Jesus. Now, this may seem a little bit weird, but do you ever thought about what Jesus could have said? Maybe what some people in this room would have been tempted to say, you know? Uh, oh, so that party you represent, you throw me out of the synagogue. We already looked at that miracle where that Jesus got thrown out of the synagogue. You say that I'm full of demons, that's why I have such success. You're plotting my death, and now you want me to come and deliver your daughter? Get lost, right? I mean, so, uh, but it's so foreign to Jesus' way of thinking or behaving. I'm sure no one in this room uh, would ever have those thoughts, but maybe some people down the uh, uh, church down the street might. But. but look at Jesus. He carries no grudges. There's no bitterness. There's no sense of him wanting to get even, right? He just blesses those who wish him harm. Important lesson there. And uh, then you know the story uh, from last week. They're moving along quickly towards Jairus' house. It's an emergency. This woman comes and touches the tassels of his garment, and Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? And so, you know, she didn't just go, me, and Jesus like, thank you, and like, and like keeps moving. I mean, Jesus, uh, it's like, you know, he's coming, he's stopping, and he's having a conversation with her. She stooped down with him, and uh, I, I imagine Jairus is like, come on, like, my daughter's dying. Who touched me? Are you kidding me? My daughter's at her last moments. And she, um, she kneels down, and she's now telling Jesus the whole truth. So she's telling him her whole story, and she gives him 12 years of history. It says she's been going on for 12 years. She's giving them the whole story, 12 years of history. Jairus has got to be thinking, you've got 12 years of history. My daughter's 12 years old. Let's get moving. Yeah. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus is now giving her words of comfort. So she's telling him the story, and now he's giving her words of comfort, right? And in Mark, 3, Mark 5, 35, while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some, some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So Jesus, he's speaking, for the, uh, speaking to this woman, and he sees these people coming, and they're not very nice about it. Your daughter is dead. Now, where had these people been? They'd been planning the funeral, right? They weren't trying to help Jairus find Jesus. They were back there to, uh, taking care of these practical manners. Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? I want you to hear what they're saying. Here's what they're saying. Your daughter's dead. Now, for goodness sake, give up on this crazy Jesus stuff. Now, while she was alive, you went to try to find him. Okay. You went through, even though the other synagogues are saying he's full of demons, enough is enough. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Are you crazy? She's dead. And so in the, in the mind of the family, they thought if Jesus had any power at all, yeah, he could maybe help her. I mean, they lived in Capernaum. They had to be hearing the stories. But in their mind, uh, Jesus, what, his ability to help ended when that person died right? Like, I'll give it to you. If Jesus gets here before he dies, okay, maybe something could happen there, but uh, once she's dead, we're drawing a line at how far the power of God can go. Don't trouble him anymore. Every one of us has a line where we draw and say, that's impossible. You know, I can believe up to that point, but now you push me over the edge. I can't believe, and we move something into the category of impossible. Yeah, I'll go for prayer for this lump, but once the doctor says that test came back, it's cancer, you've got six months to live. For many Christians, something closes down in our mind, and they say, don't bother the teacher anymore. Well, like, it's just too much. Like, I could believe up to that point, but once I hear that word, whatever that word is for you, I just can't believe anymore. I'm not going to bother the teacher anymore. Some people draw a line because it's too small. Oh, it's just my, my big toe, or it's just my back. 
It's just this ringing in the ears. It's just my eyesight. It's just this and that. And you just learn to live with it because you don't want to bother the teacher anymore. You're like, man, I didn't know he was going to preach. I just thought he was going to teach here. <laughs> don't bother the teacher. It's too small. So here's Jesus. He's in the act of talking to this little lady. He's in the very act of saying, your faith has made you well. Go into peace. And he overhears these messengers just cruelly. Your daughter's dead. Stop bothering the teacher. And I love Jesus doesn't, doesn't even let Jairus answer. He just takes in this information. Guys, I'm reading something into the text here. There's no indication of Jairus speaking from this time forward until the miracle, until the miracle occurs. Sometimes we can use our words to dig up we can dig up and doubt what we planted in faith with our words. Sometimes the best thing you can do is keep your doubts to yourself because our words have power and when you speak them out loud. I remember the story of uh, Andrew Womack when he, uh, in 2001, he raised his son from the dead. They got the, they got the call while they were um, in the car. They had a four-hour drive to where their son was. And uh, he's, uh, Andrew and his wife, Jamie, they said they didn't speak a word that whole time. Well, there's just such wisdom sometimes when, man, and, uh, you know, Andrew said he had all the emotions of any father who just got the, no- the news that his father, that his son had passed away. And what did he do? They kept silence. They didn't want to speak their doubts out loud. Sometimes that's the best thing you can do. But Jesus, he doesn't even let him have a chance to do that. Mark 5, 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Okay, so here's these messengers. They're in despair. They've got no hope. Jesus has hope. She's going to be fine. Let's look at this phrase, do not fear, okay? Fear uh, actually can be used of worship. Here's what the word fear means. You guys ready for this? It means to honor, respect, give reverence to, to stand in awe of a great power. Did you get that? I think most of us think of the feelings that are attached with fear, but there's actually a focus of fear that leads to those feelings. I'm telling you something right now, all right? The word fear means to honor, respect, give reverence to, to stand in awe of a great power. So someone gets a bad report to the doctor, and they begin to fear in a negative way. What are they doing? They're honoring the word of that doctor. They're respecting the word of that doctor. They're giving reverence to that diagnosis. They're giving awe to that great power of what that doctor has just put on them. What happened? They've reached that line that we spoke of. It's, it's impossible now. I can't bother the teacher any further. I just can't see God doing that. This, this is impossible. I, I don't see any way out of it. You begin getting on the internet and looking for natural ways. I'm not against natural ways. God's not against medicine. He's against being number two. And so people give faith and honor and respect and reverence and stand in awe of that disease. People lay in bed at night and they create pictures in their mind and scenarios of uh, what they heard of what that disease is going to do to them. Okay, so man, four months from now, this is going to happen. Three months from now, I'm going to be in this condition. And people begin to own the diagnosis. This is my disease. This is my ulcer. These are my migraines. What happens? They accept it. It begins to take over. I want you to see this. Faith is a lot like fear. It just has a different object. Faith responds to God and his love power. I love that phrase, love power. Because that's, that's what it comes from. It responds to his love, power, and his will to do good. What does it do? It honors him. It reverences him. It gives respect to Jesus and his promises. It stands in awe of his great power. Notice Jesus didn't command this man's feelings. He didn't say, hey, buddy, cheer up. He didn't say that. He said, do not fear, only believe. Guys, these are commands. 
These are imperatives. Most people think of fear as a feeling. Listen, guys, you can't command a feeling. I can't command you, be happy in the name of Jesus. Okay, you can't command a feeling, all right? The New Testament was written in Greek. Um, You can't command someone to be happy, although some Christians that I've met, I wish we could. (laughs) The New Testament was written in Greek, and the Greek of this text could be translated like this. Do not be afraid, but choose to keep on believing. There's a choosing of where to put your focus. Luke's account of his story could be translated this. Deliberately put your trust in me, is what Jesus is saying. Guys, fear and faith are not primarily feelings. They're choices that we make that result in feelings. Guys, how many of these passages talk about faith? Okay, we're, we're, getting a big, we're getting a big clue in this. Fear and faith are not primarily feelings. They're choices that we make of where to put our attention, and those result in feelings. Fear and faith are the result of where we choose to focus our attention. Fear and faith are a result of what you choose to believe is true. Your feelings are simply the belated announcement of what you really believe. I can tell you what you believe by your emotions because it reveals what you've been focusing on. Faith says, don't confuse me with just those natural facts because I'm responding to a person who brings into play another set of facts that cancels just your mere natural facts. Did you get that? They said, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble him anymore. Well, if you believe that's the end of the story, you're going to panic. Okay? It's all over. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm still here. Keep believing in me. Keep your focus on me. I know what they said is tough. That's not the final answer. Here's the question. Do you believe that death has the last word? Okay, you've got to make your choice. And the result of your choice is either going to be panic and despair or a calm and a peace that you cannot explain. Fear believes one set of facts. Faith believes another higher set of facts. What I've seen some people do is they talk about lying symptoms. And so what they try to do is they try to put on this mental gymnastics that this isn't really happening. That's Christian science. That's not New Testament Christianity. Oh, yeah, my My arm hurts. Oh, it doesn't hurt. Those are just lying symptoms. Well, when those lying symptoms are healed, they won't hurt anymore. Faith is not pretending that it doesn't hurt, even though it hurts. And if I say it doesn't hurt enough, then by positive confession, if I confess it enough, then maybe someday it won't hurt. It's not these mental gymnastics, guys. Okay? Do you believe that steel can fly? Like, of course not. Nobody believes that steel can fly. The law of gravity says it can't fly. I don't know about you, I spend a lot of time on airplanes, uh, 40,000 feet above the earth, and tons of steel that flies like a bird. What's happening? There's another set of facts that cancels out the law of gravity, the law of aerodynamics, the law of lift. Jesus comes in with another set of facts that's higher than the natural laws of this planet. Let's hit this from another angle, okay? Jesus told Jairus, do not fear, only believe. It's implying that fear and faith can operate at the same time, okay? Fear and faith, they're opposing forces, okay? Fear is actually faith in the reverse. Fear is faith in the devil. Fear is the substance of things not desired. Fear opens the door to the enemy so that the things you don't desire will come to pass, Fear is, what? All right, I'll go back here. Fear and faith, this is, yeah, it's nice. I had it written, this actually, I had it written down. Sometimes I'm like, hold on, what did I say? All right, I got it this time. I got it this time. I got it this time. Fear and faith are opposing forces. 
Fear is actually faith in the reverse. Fear is faith in the devil. Fear is the substance of things not hoped for. It's the substance of things not desired. Fear opens the door to the enemy so that the things you don't desire will come to pass. Fear is believing something or someone other than God. What happens? Fear makes us subject to Satan and his death just as faith makes us recipients of life abundantly that God has to offer. Fear opens the door. This is the reason Jesus told Jairus, do not fear, because Jesus' fear, Jairus' fear would have sealed his daughter's fate. She would have stayed dead. So instead of trying to build huge amounts of faith to overcome our fears and unbelief, a simpler method is cut off the source of that, uh, of that fear. Then our simple childlike mustard seed faith can move mountains. It can raise the dead. So where does fear come from? 2 Timothy 1.7 For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and a sound mind. Fear does not come from God. This, this, this fear that leads to this despair. The way fear is able to come upon us is when we take our eyes off of Jesus and we put it onto our circumstances. That's where our fear comes from. Fear, or doubt, it just, fear and doubt can't just overcome us. Oh my goodness, it just, we have to let it in. Fear and doubt, we open the door by changing our focus from Jesus to our circumstances. By that, we're opening the door and allowing fear and doubt to come in. In the same way that faith comes by hearing the word of God, fear comes by hearing and seeing something contrary to God's word. Boy, it is quiet in this Presbyterian church this morning, I'll tell you what. In the same way that faith comes by hearing the word of God, fear comes by hearing or seeing something contrary to the word of God. How much time in the Bible do you need to counteract the effects of social media? Three hours of social media and television, three minutes of scripture, not sure it's enough. Just being honest. I'm not, not, I'm not trying to condemn anybody. I, I gotta check myself on this one. We would not be tempted with fear or doubt if we didn't consider the things that Satan uses to minister to us fear and doubt. If we did not honor respect, give reverence to, or stand in awe of that great power. A lot of people are hopeless about America. Why? Because they've been giving honor, respect, reverence to, and standing in awe of the great power of all the bad things that are going on. And they're creating scenarios. And they're listening to the prophets of gloom of how bad it's going to be. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That's what the kingdom says. Do not fear, only believe. Where on earth was Jairus supposed to get this fear or, 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 or belief from? Where, where's it supposed to come? It was because of who Jesus was. He had the presence of Jesus is what gave him that, that faith. It's because of what Jesus said. Jesus, uh, Jairus was able to put, uh, put his faith in Jesus. There's something about the tone of Jesus. I, I could just almost hear it. You know, he's basically saying, hold steady, don't be afraid. Only believe she's going to get well. Keep your eyes right here. Eyes right here. There's something about the majesty and authority of this person, Jesus. I mean, there's never a verse, and it's like, and Jesus was worried. And Jesus stayed up all night with stomach cramps because he was so scared. Like, he lived, like, like he had people trying to kill him. And yet he stayed in this unbroken communion with the Father that he knew, no one can take me out before my appointed time. 
I remember I was talking to a, a missionary in Mexico, and, um, and uh, the, the, uh, it was actually David Hogan, and the, um, the cartels, you know, they're trying to kill him all the time. And uh, he said, someone set him free from fear when they said, um, there's no bullet that, um, that can kill you except the one that God says allows you to be that martyr. You can't die before your appointed time. Took fear off of him. We just had a whole bunch of people stand here wanting to be missionaries. Man, what made the early church effective? They loved not their life even to the point of death. Guys, faith isn't inspired. It's created and fueled by the presence of Jesus. You don't go, oh man, gosh, I need faith. If I, mm, ooh, I'm gonna, ooh, I gotta work it up. Get, ooh, you, I'm gonna, mm, you know what? I don't, I don't want you to do. Goku powering up to Super Saiyan level. There's none of this working up of faith. Faith starts from the outside and springs from the inside. It starts from the outside looking at Jesus, focusing on what he says, focusing on his words, meditating on these stories so they become real to us. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Faith comes from him, looking at him. Now, Jairus didn't come to Jesus with all this faith. He came with absolute helpless dependence. He didn't come full of faith. He came in absolute helpless dependence. That's the best place you can come to Jesus. You don't come to Jesus all fat and sassy and, yeah, let's go kick some devil butt. You're always a helpless dependence. You're always childlike. You're always needing him. Your strength is always because of who he is, not because of how amazing or all the testimonies you have or what group you're a part of or who has ordained you or if you've got a ministry named after you. Faith comes from looking at Jesus and listening to his words. Mark 5, 37, And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. It's not the only time he's taken these three. I don't know why he's done this. He's done this in other places. Very often it's these three. Verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. So you can just see them. They're coming up. There's this weeping. There's this howling of just this mourning going on, this great exaggerated sobs coming from in the house, coming from around the house. In uh, Jewish, in, uh, Jewish days then, it was an unspoken law that you had to hire professional mourners to show the seriousness and the despair of the situation. People to help you kind of create the mood and the atmosphere of how bad it was. You would have had flute players playing their dirges, right? So you can imagine Jesus, he's coming up to this scene. I mean, these, these rude people, your daughter's dead, quit bothering them, only believe. Now they're in a hurry. They're walking to it. And this, I want you to imagine this. You're, you're walking up to the scenario, and it is nothing but doom and gloom. There is no one like, oh, thank God, Jesus is here. There's the wailing, there's the howling, there's the flute going on. The professional mourners are just exaggerating this thing. And as Jesus, uh, he approached the most important house in town, there's the wailing of, of the professional mourners, the family and friends who are gently mourning, and Jesus comes in and he takes over the situation. Verse 39, And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. I want you guys to get, I mean, imagine, we're just reading this in a couple of verses. Get inside of this. This whole commotion of this morning, and now they're mocking Jesus. He wasn't saying the child wasn't dead. Okay, what's he doing? He's bringing hope to this house. He's saying from heaven's perspective, this child's in a condition that's no more permanent than an afternoon nap, and I'm here to wake her up. He's walking in with a completely different perspective. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in there where the child was. There's a reason that Jesus only allowed these five people to walk in with him. It's because of the other people's unbelief. The unbelief of others can hinder the manifestation of God's power. 
I'm going to say it again. The unbelief of others can hinder the manifestation of God's power. We see this uh, in the next chapter, Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Jesus could not do many mighty miracles in his hometown because of their unbelief. He was still able to lay his hands on a few sick people, the people who came to them, but that atmosphere of unbelief. There's a reason in Luke 8 where Jesus put out all the mourners who mocked him. Uh, there's a reason in Mark 8 why he led the blind man away from the other uh, unbelief of the town of Bethsaida. He took the deaf and mute man aside from the multitude in Mark 7. There's a reason Elijah and Elisha, when they're raising the dead, they did it in solitude. Peter did the same thing in Acts 9. Many miracles have been lost, not because of any unwillingness on God's part, but rather the person who believed for the miracle failed to realize the hindrance that other people's unbelief can have on them. Do I need to say that one again? Many miracles have been lost, not because God didn't want the miracle to happen, but because people simply didn't realize how effective the unbelief of other people is upon them. If you want to be well and you want to know the healing energy of Jesus, do not hang around the mourners and the doubters. They will drag you down with them. And for goodness sake, if you're listening to this and you go to a church that is teaching that the miracles have ceased, quit going to that church. It's a different gospel and it's a different Jesus. I don't care how many Bible verses they quote or what name they got in their church. If they're saying the miracles have ceased, that's a different gospel and a different Jesus, and it just might be what Peter calls a damnable heresy. Verse 41. Taking her by the hand, the Greek is he's grasping it with authority. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means the little girl, I say to you, arise. Mm. Talitha kumai, it's Aramaic. It's the heart language of Jesus. Jesus probably spoke Greek. He probably spoke Hebrew. But we see oftentimes he's speaking his heart language. He's on the cross. His last words, he's speaking Aramaic. We see several times. And so it's like the gospel writers, it's like we can't say it any better in Greek. We have to give the heart language of Jesus. Every mother in Israel said these words every morning to their girls. When they went into their daughter's bedroom and they drew the curtain, Talitha Kumai, get up, little girl, it's time to get up. That's the way they got their kids up every morning. And Jesus speaks with authority. Little girl, it's time to get up. Verse 42, and immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Luke 8, 54 tells the same story. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. What a picture there. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. Her spirit, that eternal part of her, had departed when she died, but came back in her when she lived. It's almost like a, a hand in a glove. And the glove is this body. It's the part everybody sees, but that's not the real us. The real us is this eternal part, and that's the part that came back into her. She wakes up and walks around. She sees mom. She sees dad. She sees Peter. She sees James. She sees John. And she sees this Jesus who'd been grasping her hand. Can you imagine being there? <laughs> what an incredible scene. Verse 43, And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Jesus goes right to the practical. I love this. There's all this supernatural activity going on, but it's like, you know what? You also need some physical sustenance. Why did Jesus tell them not to say a word to anyone? I mean, there's a crowd that all know she's dead. They all know that they're going to see the little girl wake up. Why is he telling them this? I think this is a lesson for us today. 
Don't let, sometimes God does not want you to let unbelievers get a hold of what went on there and tear it apart with all their questions. Don't let the gossips and the doubters tear the story apart and fill everyone's mind with doubt. What happened here is sacred, and sometimes Jesus is like, this is an awesome miracle, but don't give it to the pigs. Don't cast your pearls before swine. This is sacred. Guys, there's a time to tell the story to unbelievers. Just before that, Jesus told the gathering demoniac, go and tell everyone. And there's times where Jesus says, this is just a treasure among us here as a small group. We need to feed our hearts on it. And the Holy Spirit's going to let you know the difference. Some people set up a new ministry and they go around the world telling everybody how God raised their daughter from the dead. And it's okay. And sometimes others will need to shut the door and get on with your life and appreciate the miracle of having your little girl back. If you notice, we've had um, dead raisings, we've had people in the church that were raised from the dead, and we've never tried to use them to promote our church. Get up here and tell your story. It's their story to tell. It's not ours to try to promote. How we doing? Can I give you a little spiritual interpretation here? How old is this little girl? How, old, how long was the woman with the issue of blood suffering? And here, the gospel puts these two stories right together for us. As long as this little girl had been alive, the woman had been suffering. And what was she suffering with? She was bleeding at her point of intimacy. In the Bible, the church is often represented by a woman. So here we see the church who's been bleeding in her point of intimacy. And here Jesus is on the way to raise up the next generation in an instant. But what if this is what God's doing? As he's on his way to raise up this next generation that's so lost, he's got to stop and heal the church first. And as soon as the church is healed, the next generation was raised up in an instant. A lot of people are uh, down on this generation. They're woke, they're this and that, they're on their phones all the time, this and that. And Jesus says they're going to be raised up in an instant. But first we've got to take care of the church. They've been bleeding where they're supposed to be intimate. And God's fixing that. Why don't you stand for a moment here? I want us to take a moment and I want us to pray for the next generation because I believe these dead bones can live again. It doesn't take a prophet to say, yea, that I say this generation is messed up. This generation has problems. Look at this generation. That doesn't take a prophet. But it takes a prophet to look at a, a messed up generation, a valley of dry bones, and say, you know what? These bones are going to live again. I'm not trying to hype this up, guys. You can feel the Holy Spirit here already. Some of you have got kids who are not walking in the way that they were raised. And so, Lord, we just speak to those dry bones, and we say they will live again. And Holy Spirit, come and do your work on us as a church to heal us in our place of intimacy. Where we've gotten things wrong, where we've, we've seen you wrong, heal us. And Lord, we just prophesy that you're going to raise up this generation in an instant. That they're going to fear nothing but you. They're not going to be fooled by religion. They're going to only want the authentic. And so, Lord, we call those kids, those family members, those moms, dads, sons, daughters, cousins, co-workers, we call them back home to you in the name of Jesus. And we say, dead bones, you will live again in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Two more things. Yeah, yay God. Two more things. Um, every year we love to do this. We know that there's families in our church that are um, 
you know, around Christmas time, finances, yeah, you can sit back down, we'll sit for the second. We know finances is tough, and so we don't want to embarrass anybody, but we want it to be a blessing to you. So let's just start with this. If there's any single